This episode of Tales from Ostlantis is brought to you by Ostlantis Premium. Don't you just hate having your favorite podcast interrupted by ads like this? Well, dear listener, you're in luck. Because starting at just three bucks a month, you can support independent Chicano media and receive ad-free episodes, premium episodes, bonus content, and access to our Discord server. Just visit talesfromastlantis.com and click Go Premium, or follow the link in the show notes. And now, on with the show. You must excuse me. I've grown quite weary. This hasn't been easy, I know. But you've learned a lesson. A lesson in honesty. Honesty to yourself and honesty to others. That lesson will stand you in good stead all your life. I think we've all learned a good lesson. I've always heard that honesty is the best policy. Now I'm catching on to why that's so, why that's so, why that's so. Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to yet another episode of Tales from Astlantis. We are your hosts, Curly Tlapoyawa. And Ruben Ariano Tlacatecat. So today we are joined, and I'm very excited for today's episode, folks. I got to admit, um, I've been looking forward to this. Uh, with bated breath to, to get this done. And we are joined by Dr. Kenneth L. Fetter, or Ken Fetter, as many might know him on the interwebs. Absolutely. Dr. Call, call me Ken, call me Kenny, whatever you want to call me. Yeah, it's in uh, on your wiki bio. It has Kenny in uh, parentheses, yeah, so that's quotation what, marks. Yeah, that's that's. Sometimes I just sign my, my emails KFED, the original. You don't know, make, make a mistake in assuming I'm that uh, Madonna boyfriend or whatever the hell it is. Well, welcome, uh, to, welcome to the podcast. Welcome hey, to, listen, thank you, thank you guys. Thank you very, very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I'm, uh, I was looking at your, uh, your bio here. You are now a professor emeritus. At, That's right. Uh, Central Connecticut State University, is that you where? You got it, you got it. I, uh, Dr. Fetter is the author of several books on archaeology and criticism of pseudo-archaeology, such as Frauds, Myths, and Mysteries, Science and Pseudoscience in Archaeology, which is one of my favorite books ever written, by the way. Well. Hey, thank uh, you very much. That's I really, I really genuinely appreciate that, for real. Oh, I appreciate your work. I remember when I first discovered it um, – at UNM, uh, one of my professors had it sitting on their desk, and I just looked at it, and I was like, oh, what do we have here? And uh, I borrowed it, and um, I never gave it back. So, <laughs> Dr. Yeah, don't, don't announce that, that, that in the air, for God's sake. <laughs> Dr. Wirt Wills, I still have your book. If you're listening. <laughs> it's like the book, the book detectives are going to come after your ass. Girl. Yeah, yeah. And um, your name was always brought up uh, in my classes, uh, Dr. Uh, Patricia Crown, Patty Crown. Mm. Uh-huh. She had mentioned you a couple of times. And I'm like, oh, who is this guy? I need to look. It sounds like we're on the same wavelength. I need to, I need to look into this. Um, but you have a new book. Well, what's your, your latest book? Hi. So um, I, wrote, I wrote Frauds. And Frauds has been out there for 20 years or whatever. And... The book after Frauds and Rowe was called is uh, Ancient America, 50 Archaeological mm. Sites to See for Yourself. Right. And it's this, and listen, man, if you want to really understand the 
the, the cultural heritage of Native America, there are plenty of sites that are open where you can actually engage. You can look at rock art. You can look at cliff dwellings or mounds and understand what ancient America really was all about, not the, not the bullshit. And so and that one did really well. And then when I was, just as we were putting that, sending that off to the printer with Robin Littlefield as a publisher, my editor, uh, uh, Leanne Silverman, calls me and we're just decompressing whatever. And she says, well, Ken, when's, you, when's the next book? When's Ancient America 2? And I said, you know, Leah, that's kind of like asking a woman who's just given birth. Okay, what, when are you going to have your second baby? Mm-hmm. That's not exactly the thing you want to talk about. But I, I kind of, I panicked. I said, well, if a publisher talks to you about a book, you got to give them an answer. And yeah. just off the top of my head, I thought, well, what if I were to combine frauds with Ancient America? So it's a tour guide of fake archaeological sites that are open to the public. And I just kind of, I, I spitballed that to her thinking, there's no way. And her, she's paused. And then she's, Kenny, that sounds like a really fun idea. And so my book, my most recent book is called Archaeological Oddities. And it's visiting some of the sites that I talk about in Frauds and some others, places you can go to where people have misinterpreted, misrepresented, or played out, faked the archaeological record. Uh, And so it's fun, but it's a way of of explaining how archaeologists know these things are not real. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about, uh, I guess, I guess, Ruben, you were talking about the fact that there's a a rumor of a, a, what is it, a pterodactyl flying around in Texas? Yeah, there's a place over here uh, just south of, uh, in in South Dallas, uh, near Interstate 20, and it's the highest peak in what is considered North Texas, and it's uh, it goes by the name colloquially by some people as Witch Mountain. And there's reports of people claiming to have seen this large reptilian flying thing that's been dubbed the pterodactyl. So, yeah, <laughs> is that we what have a our, Disney movie is about? <laughs> Isn't there a <laughs> Disney movie called Escape from Witch Mountain? Escape, probably. <laughs> you know, it's one of those one of those words that you find just anywhere. Like if you go to just any place in America, you'll find something that people have dubbed witch this or spooky. Right, right, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, there's a there's a there's a there are forty. Um, entries in my book uh archaeological oddities and one of them is from a site in southern utah uh called black dragon canyon and in black dragon canyon there is supposed to be a petroglyph that looks like a pterodactyl Hmm. and the creationist websites claim that shows that native americans living in utah what two thousand years ago that there were still pterodactyls flying over their heads and they're drawing them on the canyon walls. So like well, Avatar, they're, they're riding the, the pterodactyl. <laughs> they could be, they could be. Now I've been there and it's a really great place with all kinds of incredibly interesting uh, petroglyphs and uh, uh, rock art. And hell, it's not a pterodactyl. You've got to be high to think it's a pterodactyl. And what's, what's kind of fun is that finally scientists said, all right, we're going to go look at the pterodactyl. And they, they brought some imaging equipment there. And what, what it is, it's five different uh, pieces of rock art. And it's a couple of bighorn sheep. And it's a bighorn snake, which they have out there. And a person, an anthropomorph. And if you, like, combine them all and collect them, connect them all, it looks like it looks like a pterodactyl from the land of misfit pterodactyls. <laughs> One of its wings is, is, like, big. And the other wing is, like, really stunted. 
And yet, mm. even today, you will find uh, uh, sites, creationist websites, claiming absolutely this proves that the world's only 6,000 years old because there were pterodactyls flying over the sky, in the skies of Utah a couple of thousand years wow. ago. So I mean, it's, that's one of the things that happens a lot. Being both interested in, in encouraging people to see Native American sites, but also being interested in making sure that people don't have these grotesque misconceptions about the history of America, um, you, you run into this a lot with these people trying to superimpose their own perspective or context on Native American sacred sites. And mm-hmm. that's, I mean, it's, it's patently offensive and I would, you know, if, if a bunch of Native Americans wrote an article about the true meaning of Christ on the cross and completely changed everything up, I think people would be pretty angry. You, you'd get really oh, yeah. nasty emails. But so, but people can't make that, that connection that it's equally disrespectful for mm-hmm. somebody outside of that culture to define what it means, what they were doing what their ancestors were doing. And in many cases, people still will tell you, we know what the ancestors meant because we, we've passed it down from mm-hmm. generation to generation. Mm-hmm. But that those explanations are ignored. And instead, there's a superimposition of this kind of Western view of, oh, yes, it's a pterodactyl and, mm-hmm. and the Bible's true or something like that. It's like, well, one of the reasons that I, I really respect your work and everything that you do, um, particularly with the uh, combating pseudo-archaeology, is... You know, I've I've always made this uh, remark that as archaeologists, as the field of archaeology, we've sort of dropped the ball when it comes to public outreach and community engagement, right? Like we've become so inward facing and insular that we, we talk to the stuff, we talk to each other about this stuff, but we don't really engage the public about this stuff. And when we do that, we leave this void and that void gets filled by the History Channel and Graham Hancock and, you know, Joe Rogan or uh, Alex Jones or whoever's out there. They fill this void that sort of archaeologists have left wide open for people to step into because we're not addressing these things um, the way that you are. Like, you're one of the few uh, and most well-known archaeologists that are actively addressing these issues so i just want to say thank you for that first and foremost but what do you see you know i saw the the documentary that you were on the um the science friction uh right great documentary but one of the things that i'm seeing is you know should we be one of the arguments that i'm seeing is should we be engaging with the history channel on these things should we be making the effort to try to correct them, or is it already a lost cause? Right. Uh, I have a, a two-part answer I'll give you. The first is, uh, thank you very much for pointing out that, at least for a while, I don't think I was like the only person out there. Stephen Williams at, at uh, Harvard was talking about this stuff. Uh, Stuart Scott and Charles Cazeau were talking about that. Uh, Robert Walkup, at University of Texas, I believe, wrote a book back in the 50s or 60s called Lost Tribes and Sunken Continents. Mm. Uh, and today, there really are, there's a growing number of people. There's Jem Card and David Anderson and Steph Hamhalfer, uh, who, uh, and, and Sarah Head and a bunch of other people, uh, who are taking up the cudgel and taking this stuff really seriously. Um, but that, the answer to the second part, the, the second part of my, the answer here is I have for years done surveys among my students 
and actually started off in the 80s with a survey that went out to a bunch of other schools. And asking students about making statements like uh, ancient Egyptians were helped by extraterrestrials to build the pyramids or the lost continent of Atlantis was real. And then asking students to answer on this, what sociologists call the Likert scale. So it's one strongly disagree, two mildly disagree, three, I don't know, four strongly agree, five, no, four mildly agree, five strongly agree. And here's the deal. When you ask people that who are kind of naive, you know, they're, they're not majors, they don't know, know much, the biggest proportion you get in there is that I don't know. So it's not, you don't hit right up front a lot of people going, oh, hell yeah, Vanadikadu is right. Or, oh, hell yeah, Graham Hancock is right. Or, hell yeah, there was Atlantis. What there is, and here's the danger in not responding. What there is, is a tremendous amount of interest and curiosity about, well, what about Atlantis? How about Stonehenge? How the pyramids? How were those built? And so, and when you have that kind of, the, the, the good news, bad news, the good news is, that's great that they're interested. The bad news is, if we professionals, archaeologists, people who really know their stuff, don't jump in to help answer those questions, we leave it wide open for people who have agendas that are a lot different from ours. That agenda might be just surely making money or promulgating conspiracy theories or whatever. So like it or not, there's a fertile field out there of people who want to know stuff. And if the only source of information are really bad documentaries on the History Channel or really bad websites or really bad podcasts or whatever then it's, it's an abrogation of our responsibility, an abdication of our responsibilities as, as archaeologists or historians or whatever if we don't respond, if we don't take up that hammer. And it's, it's, a two, it's a two-pronged thing, and that's what I've tried to do in my career. Yeah, debunking is important. Okay, sure. If somebody says, no way, there's no way that Native Americans could have built Chaco Canyon and it's astronomically aligned, no way then it's, yeah, absolutely is our responsibility to say, wait a minute, we know how it was built. Here are the, the techniques that we know Native people applied and have passed on for generations. You know, if you, you can't look at uh, Taos Pueblo in New Mexico and look at Chaco Canyon and wonder, could Native Americans have built this? My God, they were building it not that long ago. Mm-hmm. You can see it right there. It's still being built. So that's important. It's also important to encourage people to, I think, to actually directly engage with this stuff. So don't just listen to me. That's what a couple of my books are all about now. Go and see these places. Go and see these places. Go to Chaco Canyon. Go to Three Rivers uh, Petroglyph Site. Go to, in Albuquerque, go to Petroglyph National Monument. Go and look at those things and come away with, with, a, with a respect for the people who we know actually accomplished that stuff. These are not, uh, there was a fairly recently, or every once in a while on Twitter, there's this big blow up about the use of the word primitive. And that's strike that word from your language. It's the primitive implies so many negative things. There's nothing freaking primitive about the people who built uh, Cliff Palace at Mesa Verde. There is nothing, nothing primitive about the rock art, the, the pictographs, in Horseshoe Canyon. That's great art that 
you could hang that at any museum in the world and people would say, whoa, that's amazing art. And that's, if you try, don't steal that from the people who actually are responsible for that. And so it's, and I think for most people, if they, if we both respond to the, the, the claims that are fallacious, and if we encourage them to actually personally visit these places, look at these places to gain an appreciation for them. I mean, ultimately, you're always going to have that, that tiny percentage that say, no, I strongly agree. It was, it was, uh, it was aliens, but you know what? You're gonna oh, you're gonna get that tiny percentage who also say the Holocaust never happened, mm-hmm. or that but, you know. It, you know what else is? Uh, I think. I mean, all that is true. What the, the point that the Curly's making and, and that you're addressing um, is valid. There needs to be more um, done on the part of professionals, academics, to reach out to the community and to explain it in terms that they can understand. And uh, as a, as an instructor of history, which is what I do. Um, I try to do that in my classes. I try to break down the the history and the ideas in such a way that students can take something away from it, right? I don't expect sure. them to memorize everything, to learn everything that there is to know, uh, but at least to take away the tools necessary for them to distinguish and discern good uh, information from bad information and things like that. But I, I also think the flip side to this is that people just like a good story in general. People like a good mystery. People could like a good horror story. People like uh, things that are fantastical. And oftentimes, even after you present the evidence that is showing the facts as they are, as they have been, uh, you know, determined uh, right. through consensus, right? There's always that element that that people still linger and kind of latch onto this notion that, well, what if, you know, what if it was this mm-hmm. way, you know? Can we imagine it to be different? And how might that look like if it were this other way that is counterintuitive and counterfactual? So I think yeah. some of that is also playing into this, uh, all these stories and all these um, misconceptions that people have out there about, especially things related to Native Americans. Uh, so I don't know. No, I agree 100%. You're absolutely right. Absolutely right. Well, one I, of the things I mean, that I've uh, experienced <clears throat> when I explain some things to people is they'll say, well, that might be true. But this story makes me feel good. So I'm just going to stick with it. And it's like, uh. uh right. What are you, you going to do? What are you gonna do? Yeah. Let me give you an example from outside of archaeology about how that works. Uh, years and years ago, uh, Nova did a documentary about the Bermuda Triangle. Okay. This is a, like in the 70s. Uh, no, I'm, I'm lying. It was in the 80s, the late 1980s. And they interviewed people who believe that there's a horrible menace there and people disappear. And they interviewed this guy, Lawrence Cush. And Cush wrote a book called The Bermuda Triangle Mystery Solved. And basically what he did was he went and looked at like the newspaper accounts of every one of these. And in every case, he could show that the, the stories about these mysterious disappearances were not true. They just simply were not factually accurate. And he's uh, either flight 19, which is where the five bombers go into the Atlantic and they disappear without a trace. Yeah. My God, man, we've got, <laughs> we've got, uh, we've got some of the conversation was transcribed between these pilots who ran out of gas. They said they were running out of gas. They were following a commanding officer who kind of got them lost because he thought they were over the, the Gulf, but clearly they were in the Atlantic. A big, long story about that. Anyway, they interviewed in this, this special, 
they interviewed a guy who wrote, I'm not going to even mention his name. I don't want to boost his book sales. But he wrote a very, 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 very credulous book about the Bermuda Triangle. And the interviewer there said, well, have you read Lawrence Cush's book? Because he's deconstructed all of these stories, which shows that nothing that you're telling is true. You know what his response was? His response was, well, I could have written a book like Cush with a bunch of facts, (laughs) <laughs> but no, but he act. No, I'm not exaggerating with a bunch of facts. But that would have been. But like the reviewers say, that's boring. I want to make my books interesting. Yep. Do you mm. understand what he's saying? He's saying facts are bullshit. Print the legend. <laughs> Isn't there an, an old adage that says something along the lines of when the facts are boring, print them? I don't know. Print the There's legend. Like, <laughs> I'm, so. I'm getting it all wrong, but that, that's the thing. <laughs> but you know, you're always gonna. You're right. You're always going to run into people who don't want to know. And all you can do is say, hey, look, this is how we know stuff. This is how we learn stuff. And if, you know, you don't, you don't want to believe that, remember that in science, it's not about belief. Mm-hmm. I don't believe in evolution. I have seen the evidence. The evidence convinces me that that is the correct hypothesis. Right. Uh, I haven't, you know, I, I can't go back in time and watch the Egyptians build the pyramids. But, dude, we, we have we have the... the uh, the like the diaries of the people making the pyramids talking about uh, uh, just recently there's a, a book by this guy talent and, and mark laner who's a real big deal in egyptology about this papyrus that was found a few years ago that they're slowly translating and what it basically is is some guy bitching about how the workers don't show up on time and they're always complaining about the work but last week we 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 uh, floated down to the quarries and we brought these stones back for Khufu's pyramid. When you've got that, you can't say, no, they didn't build it for Khufu. It's, they're telling you who they're building it for. They're telling yeah. you how they're doing it. And it's all this mundane stuff about, oh, man, I can't wait to get home to the missus because this is backbreaking yeah. work. Come on. And, but if, if you want to deny all that, then, you know, the conspiracy mindset is nothing you say. Nothing you say is going to make any difference because they're not going to believe it. I mean, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. man, I don't know how much you want to get into politics, but if if there ever was an example of that, it's Donald Trump and all these people who support him. It's like it doesn't. Nothing makes any difference. It's it becomes like a religious belief, and yeah, gonna, the, the truth be damned, right? Uh, seriously, right? You know. Well, when I um, so I did my field school in Chaco Canyon, and. What a place, huh? Yeah, so gorgeous. And yeah, I love it there. And when people would find this out, one of the first questions I would get, not not so much anymore, but what this is when I was still in in school, somebody would always ask me, Well, did you find any evidence of the giants? And I'm giants, huh? And and I would say no. And they would give me this look like, Oh, you're lying. You know what I mean? Like like they didn't even believe me. I'm like, no, there's no giants in Chaco Canyon. But if you want to know something that I think was fascinating, when we were up on the Mesa top, um, the south side of Chaco, up on the Mesa top, Uh we did find uh, like shark's teeth just everywhere. Serious? Strewn all over the place. And to me, that's way more fascinating than finding you know a, a giant right you don't have to make something up to make you don't need to make anything up about Chaco to make Chaco one of the most fascinating places that you could ever possibly go and 
you know, the shark's tooth stuff just wasn't interesting to them, though. I'll be like, no, but we we found all these shark's teeth. And he's like, nah, yeah, but what about the giants, man? (laughs) Well, I've been to Chaco several times, and it just recommend anybody who's listened to this podcast, man, if you can get there, they do Mexico. It is an amazing place. And the last time we were there, we did the hike to the the supernova pictograph. Mm -hmm. I mean, how... I, don't, I just don't need anything more interesting or more mysterious than the fact that in 1064 uh, CEAD, whatever you want to call it, there were astronomers at Chaco Canyon looking into the night sky and seeing the what was now the Crab Nebula become a supernova and think about what the hell, where did that come from? And then drawing it on the roof of a little rock shelter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I that mean, is impressive. How? Yeah. how yeah. There's no bet. I mean, when I, I, I know it's like maybe it's it's me being an archaeology nerd, but standing there, my back against the rock cliff, looking up at that, the pictograph of the crescent moon and the star and the hand, mm-hmm. which signifies something important happened here, and then looking out at the sky and thinking, almost a thousand years ago, there were people right here who saw that and said that we need to memorialize that. I mean, that direct connection you can make with people who've been gone for almost a thousand years is so much more interesting than making up bullshit stories about, well, maybe there were giants or maybe it was <laughs> aliens or, or maybe it was Atlantis. And it's, well, no, here's what we do know. And if you don't think that's really cool, I, I have nothing more to say to you. Well, yeah. I wanted to ask you uh, from your book, uh, the, the Sykes book, which one is your favorite and uh, which one would you recommend people to visit? Right. First, if, if they if they were to choose one to start off with, which one would it be? All right, Let me, can I ask you guys a question first? Two sure. questions. Number one: Do you have kids? Yes. Do you have a favorite? On, on <laughs> this is on. We're on. We're taping this now, and your kids are going to listen to this. Well, uh, we have an only child, so oh, oh so that's easy. Uh, that's too easy, man. I love that's- my children equally. <laughs> I'm looking at Curly's face right now. He is lying. Oh my god. <laughs> anyway, so that's like look, I have four kids, two different two different families, whatever. And if you were to ask me which is your favorite kid, I would say oh, I would be blinking my eyes like this. I don't have a favorite kid. <laughs> I need Morse coding saying, please, dear God, I'm being held hostage. Save me. Um it's really, really hard. But, but here's my here's how I'll answer the question. If you looked at my 50 sites book and you said to me, Kenny, I got two weeks to live and I can only visit one of the sites in your book. I would and you and it was three o'clock in the morning and I wasn't thinking I'd say I would say Mesa Verde. Mesa Verde. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's nice. It's the 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 cliff dwellings there, Cliff yeah. Palace is just astonishing. And uh one of the things in the 50 Heights book that I tried to do, not, not necessarily successfully, was that to, to pick sites that anybody who had knew nothing about archaeology, nothing about Native American heritage, just blank, would look at it and go, holy shit, that's amazing. Mesa Verde is one of those places where no matter what, I the, was there at Mesa Verde not that long ago, and there were family with two kids, and the two kids were on doing handheld video games or whatever. And it was the, right, right. I mean, right? And it was the trail to the overlook of Square Tower House, which is not the biggest of the cliff dwellings, but 
I don't know, man. I think it may be the most beautiful. And the, the setting is um, um, amazing. It's got that four-story tower leaning up against the back of the cliff. And these two kids were on there, and their parents kept saying, will you put those things away? And they, yeah. Yeah, 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 they're still doing it. And finally, they, you turn the corner, and there's the overlook. And the parents grabbed the video games from the two kids. And the two kids were, why? And then they, then they said, look. And they looked. And both of the kids went, whoa. Wow. And it's like, now they may have gone right back to the video games right. afterwards, but <laughs> that's that's the kind of, of impact a place like Mesa Verde has. Mm-hmm. Um, but man, it's hard because if you ask me on a different day, I would say, oh man, uh, Horseshoe Canyon, mm. and, uh, the rock art there is the, is just so incredible isn't that isn't the rock art there in danger from tourists that, that go in there and no. they, like damage it or am i thinking the of good news place? about horseshoe the good news about horseshoe canyon is that number one it's not that easy to get to so there's like a 30 mile dirt road and they always have um a ranger is stationed right there at the rock art at the the the, the, the trail uh passes by four rock art panels one on a flat surface that you, you can access very easily. That one doesn't have a lot of graffiti. One that's way the hell high up and there's no way you can access it. Mm-hmm. Another that's in a little bit of a rock shelter. And yeah, that one has been savaged. Mm-hmm. And then there's the main one where you, if you look at a, up a pic, if you look up, if you Google Horseshoe Canyon, it's the rock art that they'll show you in that because that's that's the, the, the iconic stuff. That's, you can't get to it, but during the day, there's always a ranger there. And my story about that is, so my wife and I are walking that trail and it's, it's a, a long slog. It's like three and a half miles and it's all in sand. So it's like walking on a beach and uh, it's kind of tough. But when you get to that, the, the, the great gallery, and we asked the, the ranger there about this because what we noticed is we're, you know, you're hiking, you're hiking with your honey, you're talking, you're joking, you're laughing. And when we got there, we got really quiet and we only spoke in whispers. And it wasn't, there was no sign telling us to do that. It just felt like, wow, we're not Native Americans, but this is a sacred place. Mm-hmm. Uh, historically, artistically, if that's your religion, that's your religion. It was, and we asked the ranger about that. He said, isn't it funny how we only talk in whispers here? He goes, that happens to everybody. He says, he's noticed that every time people show up after that three and a half mile hike, they get really quiet. And there's not a lot of laughter, not a lot of talking. And man, if you can can get that kind of reaction, that's just astonishing. That one doesn't have, there was no graffiti that I can remember seeing. Now, there's another beautiful, that's called Barrier Canyon uh, art. There's another Barrier Canyon art panel at Buckhorn Wash. And if you look at photographs of it from like the 1960s, it's covered in uh, uh, graffiti. But the community actually got together and they hired uh, art restorers. And the what we saw, there's like no graffiti there. And you can you really can't see... Uh, the damage that was done. So, so at least in that case, the, the local community said, no, this is something we need to save. So in your, in your book on um, your newest book, do you, off the top of my head, I cannot remember the name of the site, but it's a basically 
a fake Chaco outlier site in Southern Colorado. Oh man, yeah, I know what you're talking about. And yeah. I, I can't remember the name of it, but basically, and they present it well. I don't know if so much that they present it as authentic, but they certainly don't um, point out that it's not authentic. Like they don't make any efforts to say, right. well, this site was actually a reconstruction. Like they dismantled a legitimate Chaco outlier yeah. and took it up there and then built it out. Um, not even trying to reconstruct the way that it looked. They just sort of built what they thought it, it should look right, like. Right. And yeah. when you see photos of it, there's like people crawling all over it and climbing through it. And I'm like, whoa, whoa how the hell is this even possible? <laughs> we'll be back after a quick break. Have you picked up your Mexica calendar for the year 12 Flint? Or how about a paperback copy of The Four Disagreements? Just visit TalesFromAstlantis.com for all the latest merchandise and show some love for your favorite podcast. That's TalesFromAstlantis.com for all the latest merchandise. Now, back to the show. Yeah. Well, let, let's, you know what? Let's not mention the name of it because then they'll just get more, more people going to it. There's an interesting backstory there. And you're right. They, I have never been there. I had a bunch of students who went to a conference in uh, Denver and they rented a car and based on what they saw online, they went and visited that site. They had no idea. And these are not really naive people. They had no idea that the whole thing was faked. They thought they were seeing a really cool cliff dwelling. Mm -hmm. And I had to tell them, here's what happened. Um, Mesa Verde's got a really interesting history, right? So you've got the the Weatherills, mm -hmm. who, who did not discover Mesa Verde, my God. They even told you who, who the who the native person was who told them about the cliff dwellings. He was a Ute. His name was Akowitz. He talked all about the, the houses of the ancient ones in there and that the Utes don't go down there because there still are ghosts there. He even described Cliff Palace to them before it was Cliff Palace. So the Weatherills did not discover Mesa Verde. But they, the, the, weather, the, the, the Weatherill family, think, uh, think the Cartwrights, you know, from Bonanza, that's kind of what they were. Yeah, Big sure. wealthy family, blah, blah, blah. And they, after they were done plundering the place, they tried to convince the federal government to make it into a national park. And par maybe partially it was selfish because they wanted, they, they would still have access to it, but they wanted other people not to have access to plundering it. Or maybe in their hearts, they kind of, you know, wished that it would be preserved. I think Richard Weatherill is buried at Chaco Canyon. Yeah, I I um I I helped excavate his house actually. Did you really? Yeah. Is this is it true that he was like somebody shot him? Yes, Chis Chilling the Gay R.I.P. shot <laughs> Richard Weatherill right in the head. Uh, Navajo <laughs> man. Laughing? Should I? it sounds like a Navajo name. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. He's Dene. Um, I actually dedicated my final project to him. You know, when you do your dedications on your oh, last yeah, yeah, slide, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did a special thank you to just chilling the gay and everybody just kind of looked at it like, whoa, did you thank him? Cause he killed Richard Wetherill. But there's actually a, uh, a petroglyph, uh, panel in Chaco. I won't say where, but there's actually a panel depicting the murder of 
Richard oh, okay. Wetherill at the hands of Chis Chilling Begay. And it's really well done. It, Is it you really? Could, you could see like the splatter coming out of the back of his Whoa. head. Hey. And he's sitting on a horse and you see uh, the the name man standing on the on the, the ground holding up a, a rifle and and shooting him. So, hey, so look, yeah. okay, we're not going to announce where that is to the world, but Curly, the next time I go out to Chaco, I'm, ca- I'm talking to you. Uh, yeah. Maybe in the right direction. I wanted to go back to what you were um, saying just a minute ago about your experience going uh, over to Horseshoe Canyon and how right. you began to whisper. And it got me thinking, there was something that I read a while back, and I don't know if it applies here, but there's a thing that I stumbled upon not too long ago called geopsychology. Or oh yeah, psyche. Have you heard of that? And according to the definition that I just googled, cause like I said, I don't really know much about it, but it says that it is a defi- It is defined as the relationship between the complex matrix of static and time-varying geophysical and geochemical variables within a locality and human behavior. So apparently, the space that you're in causes you as an individual to behave a certain way. And I don't know if that explains the, mm. that, that experience that people have when they go to places like uh, Horseshoe Canyon. I, I never had a word, I never had a term for it, Ruben, but it's always been my belief, and I get not tested hypothesis, that people who go to Sedona and talk about right. vortexes, mm-hmm. it, they're experiencing something. Yeah. This huge mountains and canyons and you get dizzy just looking at it and I, I can certainly understand why anybody looking at that is going to f- experience a, a, a change in their perceptions. Yeah. And not because it's mystical, but because that's that's how our minds are wired. And it's, it's uh, I mean, you're not going to be sucked into another dimension, but you're just going to be in awe and mm-hmm. moved. And it doesn't surprise me that people say, I go to Sedona and I look at and I, I start crying for no reason. No, it's it's the ethereal beauty uh, that, that everybody recognizes there yeah it's it's emotionally moving mm-hmm. and I, I i now i got a word for it there you I go understand half of the words you were reading when you uh. <laughs> but, but so yeah. what is it called again there uh geopsychology or geopsyche geopsyche that's a good word for it because yeah absolutely um stuff resonates with you right when you're in a, in a <sighs> place and it just hits you and you you're just almost holding it in reverence like wow this is amazing and you just it sort of centers you and lets you know like i'm actually pretty small and insignificant compared well, to you know the, that's the that's broader the landscape that that i got whenever i went to viricuta uh when we mm. used to do ceremony with the huicholes um if you go to el quemado and certain areas of of the sacred gardens down in in, in viricuta there's there's a sense like like you're in that space and everything just seems so pronounced and your hearing just gets so accentuated to the degree where you can hear people that are you know 50 60 feet away from you and you can hear them like if they're talking to you right next to you like they're standing right next to you and they're like your perceptions just get sort of heightened mm-hmm. to a degree and you you get this sense of uh, as you were saying kind of smallness and and of yeah, wonder yeah. and awe and, and of being in this space that is that is sacred that that is meaningful that is very touching and very emotional and 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 it and it makes sense why because you have that sense of geopsyche now that we have a term for it if we can call it that this that sense of geopsychology taking place in the in 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 an area 
where the the peyote button grows naturally and those become the sacred gardens for people like the Wicholas and others and so when you're in that space and you're in the ceremony and you're having these feelings combined with the effects of being peyotied up right so mm-hmm. it's like all these things combine and, and it just creates this supernatural phenomenon for a lot of people and it's and, and that's why people do that pilgrimage and and go go to these sacred sites you know, it also it also suggests that the people who, like when we're talking about rock art, they chose those locations for rock art for maybe the same reason we're in awe. You know, we we have this this reaction because they're experiencing the same thing, right? This is a this is a sacred place, and we're going to mark this sacred place with images of spirit beings. So they're they're it's completely they may have a completely different culture, but they're human beings and their brains are wired the ways the way ours are. And you can understand why they would choose that place to memorialize because of the feeling they must have had, not dissimilar to what we have when we we visit those places. One site that keeps coming up on the internet and social media that just seems not to never go away whenever I'm talking about the peopling of the Americas, somebody will always send me a link to the Saruti site. Oh, well, say, yeah. you know, well, we've been here 130,000 years and I'm like, well, pump the brakes. I mean, there's a lot going on there. What are your what are your opinions of uh, the Saruti site? Uh, uh, let's put it in broader context. All right. When I started in grad school. So we're talking a long time ago. I was in 1974. Uh, what we were taught and what we then passed on to our students was that the oldest sites in America are Clovis and Folsom. There's nothing older. That's it. And that we also heard from professors who said, you know what? 50 years ago, we were telling students it's 3,000 years ago or 4,000. So it's a real truncated past. So as an archaeologist, now I will tell you that since I've been in grad school, those numbers have increased dramatically. So now we're talking about good, solid archaeological evidence and now genetic evidence that indicates that no, the first people of the new world were here pr- certainly more than 20,000 years ago, possibly as much as 30,000 years ago. Um, now, that's just his background. So is it possible that in 20 years, all of us archaeologists who say 30,000 will be saying, wow, 20 years ago, I thought it was 30,000, but now it's 60 or 100 or 200,000. And there's a fundamental problem with Saruti and with other sites. And that is ultimately the new world is one side of Beringia, right? So unless you're going to argue that Native Americans evolved here separately, which is genetically impossible. Just, there, are, there aren't even any apes in the new world who could have evolved into upright tool-using primates. So they have to come from someplace, and Beringia makes the most sense, Northeast Asia. The oldest sites in Northeast Asia, Siberia, are maybe 40,000 years old. So how do you get, and this is this is a question to people who support, uh, and, and I know I know people who do. I know an archaeologist, Paulette Steves, wonderful person, uh, really interesting scholar. She's written a wonderful book, but I, but I am not convinced that a site like Saruti, which she includes in her list of mm-hmm. Paleolithic sites, I don't see how they get here or from where uh, at 130,000 years. The, the way that I usually explain it to people when we're having this conversation is 
I tell them if if you're adamant that native people emerged from the Americas uh, and not from anywhere else, independently from other humans around the world, what you're suggesting is that Native Americans are a completely different species altogether. I mean, could that could that be? Is that a possible a counter argument, or or am I? I'm not an anthropologist or archaeologist or anyone who looks at this stuff, so maybe I got it all wrong. But what what do you think about that that counter argument? It, well, it's an argument I've heard, and again, genetically, biologically, it falls apart because, well, you and I, Ruben, couldn't make babies, but but I'm, I'm <laughs> Eastern European Eastern European Jew from from like three generations back. I could. I could have a baby with a Native American woman, and that baby will be fertile, which means we are the same species. Yeah. So that's the bottom line: is you can't no that that just simply that's mm-hmm. off the that's off the table completely. If you want to argue that, we're not arguing science at this point. Yeah. Now, yeah. could they have could could I tell you my my little horror story, right? So I was at a radio show, and this is we're talking about forty years ago. With me and another archaeologist and two native folks from from Connecticut, and we were talking about the Beringia, the, the Bering Land Bridge, and all. And the two native guys were arguing against that, and basically saying, "You archaeologists are implying that we native people are migrants just like you." And I said, "Yeah, but here's the deal: my great grandparents, so it's like the latter part of the 19th century." migrated to America. Your ancestors got here 20,000 years ago. Yeah. You guys definitely have priority. Mm-hmm. You were here long before my ancestors. So everybody, everybody who's not an African is a migrant. Europeans, the people living in England, those white folks in England, ultimately they migrated from Africa. Those folks living in India, people living in China, people living in Australia, you all are transplanted Africans, as mm. are Native Americans. But that doesn't mean that the Natives of Australia don't, I mean, in a, in a moral sense, own that place because they were there first yeah. by tens of thousands of years. Native people in the New World were here long, 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 long before uh, uh, anybody else got here, the Vikings and, and all the rest. Well, since you bring it up, I wanted to ask you... <laughs> Going back to your book, um, Frauds, Myths, and Mysteries, tell us a little bit about uh, Jose de Acosta. Who was that guy? He was a Spanish cleric, 16th century. This, so this guy, this guy is obviously he's a missionary, and he's trying to to uh, proselytize down in South America, and he spent more than a decade here, I believe, and then he goes home and he writes a book, and in that book, he's he he tries to propose. Well, where did the native people come from? Now, you know, there are lots of, back then, 16th century, soon after the initial contact, 15th century, 16th century, between native people in the New World and Europeans, Europeans were wondering, who who the hell are these people? Where they come from? Now, major problem, right? You got Noah's Ark, and that's the bottleneck. Everybody's wiped out. No people left except for Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their three wives. So that's it. Mm -hmm. And before before this encounter between the people of the of what we call the New World and Europeans, they had it they had it down, man. Uh, Japheth, the good son, he's the guy who he left the ark and he went north and west to Europe. He's the ancestor of Europeans. Because it, it, it doesn't it doesn't raise a question to you. He's got him and his wife, 
and they have kids. Who are his kids married? Are we, is it all incest? I mean, it gets that's, really that's weird happening. really fast. No, no kidding, right? And, uh, Shem. Gotta read the Bible. Shem, who sounds like he's one of the three stooges, but that was Shem. Shem goes east. He's the ancestor of all the Asian people. And, and Ham, Ham, by the way, is the bad son because we, after the flood, Noah's uh, making wine. And he passes out drunk and naked in his tent. And the three sons walk by and they look at it and they go, oh, dad's drunk and naked. And Japheth says, well, let's walk away. Shem says, well, what should we do? And Ham says, let's go in and cover him. And the two other brothers say, yeah, but won't that just, he'll know that we saw him drunk and naked. Ham says, I should do it. Goes in, covers his drunk and naked father who wakes up and God curses him. <laughs> Which I think Ham was probably doing the right thing. Don't, I mean, if you saw your dad drunk and naked and, oh, my God, the kids are going to see this. Is it a bad thing to, to put the cover over right. it? That was very ham-fisted, would you say? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, man, I'm not going to go in there over that. Oh, that's a burning in hell kind of a thing. <laughs> but do you know that there are people, there, were, there are people still today, but certainly back in the past in the South, who interpreted that to mean, well, since Ham is the ancestor of all Africans, and since Ham was cursed, there actually is a, a line in the Bible that you, Ham, and all of your descendants will be servants unto the other sons mm. of Noah. Yeah. And people said, ah, slavery, slavery. Right. God the, says that you're slaves. The curse of Ham. That, exactly, yeah. right? <laughs> but here's the deal. So they come back, the Europeans come back from the New World. They go, who the hell are these people? Was there a fourth son? I mean, they were literally suggesting polygenesis that, you know, God, he, he threw another creation down on the other side of the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's another Adam and Eve. There was, there was one guy who even suggested that that's all cool because the Garden of Eden was in South America. Right. And the tree of knowledge was not an apple. It was a banana tree. There's a lot of symbolism there that I don't want to get into, but, you know, <laughs> whatever. Uh, but ultimately, you got folks, there were, um, who was it? Verrazano, uh, Verrazano, uh, six early uh, 1530s, sails across the Atlantic, bumps into North South Carolina, goes north, uh, does the coast of Connecticut, sails up Hudson Bay. And when he gets back, he writes a short memoir in which he says, the native people there that we saw, they look like the Tartars, the people of East Asia, because they have mm-hmm. long black hair and dark eyes and dark skin. Mm-hmm. So he's essentially suggesting in 1530, they must, they, they've got to be Asians. They have yeah. to have come from Asia. And there are a couple of other instances where where Europeans are saying, they they, they got to be Asians. And, but Acosta now sees that and goes, you know, they, Acosta, here's Acosta's brilliant deduction, right? He says, when, when Europeans first came to the New World, not only were there people, but there were animals. But all the animals died after Noah, right? All the animals except the ones on the ark. So how in the hell are there animals in the new world? Well, they're not building boats, right? They must have been able to walk here. But if they could walk here, so could people. Where could animals and people have entered from, ultimately from Ararat? Because they got to, you know, they're at the end of a pipeline. Mm-hmm. And, and Acosta's the guy who said, look, we've explored a lot of South America. We've explored a lot of the East Coast of, of America. We saw, we explored some of the West Coast of, of North America. There's no connection without 
this is brilliant scientific deduction because the only place left is Northeast Asia, Northwest America. And he predicted that when we, we sail up there, what we will find is the two continents are connected or mm -hmm. very close. And guess what? You got, even it's before Vitus Berry, but he confirmed it, that he sails up there and says, well, it's like 50 miles apart. Yeah. I, I can see Sarah Palin's house yeah. on my boat, for God's sake. And then, of course, it was, then you add that with geology, where the geologists are saying, yeah, you know, there was there was this ice age when the sea level was way down. And then when they measured, they said, it's like 50 meters. Sea level mm. went down 150 meters at the peak of the Pleistocene. That means that's a, not a bridge, but a law, a broad, broad connection between yeah. the two places. And if animals could do that, then so could people. And where they, they, they would be people in Northeast Asia. Acostas predicted that. It was like years before the, the existence of the Bering Straits was ever confirmed. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, so he's basically the, the first person, the first uh, European, non, the first non-Native American person to suggest that there was the connection between the quote-unquote old world and the new world, and that's how humans arrived in the American Geographical connection. Now, Rupert, you got to tell you, of course, that the, the native people living up there, they're not listening to him because they're sailing boats back and forth while all this is going on. They know full well that, yeah, there's another land over there, and the, the, the Inuit and, and other the, the folks in Northeast Asia are probably island hopping and skipping and exploiting both sides, so they know it. Yeah. They're well aware of it, but probably it was a, as far as I can tell, it's Acosta who's the first one who said, "Yeah, there's got to be a connection. There's got to be a geographical connection." One of the things that we're we're seeing a lot now on the internet is this idea that, you know, like this re-emergence of like the Van Sertima stuff, and and who really oh, pot, who really you know civilized rose civilization in Mesoamerica, and who really did all of these things, and. In your book, I think you you briefly talk about yeah um, different hypotheses of you know pre-Columbian interactions in the Americas. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the things you'd you'd brought up the Petroglyph National Monument here in Albuquerque. There's one guy I don't remember his name, but he claims that he found uh, Chinese writing. Yes, yeah, uh, mm. in, in the petroglyphs. And then we have the uh, the the Los Lunas Mystery Stone uh, out Hebrew. by Los Lunas. Yeah, it's it's in it's in Hebrew. Um, do you you talk about these things in in your uh, your list of of sites that people should visit that are have been distorted? Like, do you? Oh yeah. Bring up any the, of those? The, a few years ago, in fact, we visited. We were in Albuquerque for an archaeology conference. So I, you know, I gave my paper and between you and me, nobody's going to listen to this, right? I blew off the second, two days of the conference, rented a car and drove down to Los Lunas. Was this for the, the SAAs? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, I was well, looking I, for you. Uh, that's the best, the best way to enjoy a conference is to blow most of it off. Well, the next two days of the SAAs, I was like, Ken Fetter's here. And I just sat there all disappointed and dejected. On the steps well, of the see, conference. in fact, Ruben, I knew you were gonna, you were looking for me, so I said, "No, this guy's stalking me. I got to get the hell out of Albuquerque." <laughs> but yeah, we drove down to Los Lunas and and saw it, and it's there's, and yeah, I, I I give directions and how you can go see it. It's really interesting. And then there's uh oh you want you want here's my story right, um, in Ohio there's another one of these claims of Hebrew writing in the mounds of Ohio, 
and it's uh, the Newark Holy Stones. And 1860s, this guy found this this uh, stone with Hebrew writing on it. He shows it to an Episcopalian minister and, and, and in a mound. He shows it to an Episcopalian minister who knows Hebrew, who says, oh, that's pretty cool, but this is like modern Hebrew. There's a there, It wouldn't be the age of the mounds. So then the guy goes back out there and like six weeks later finds another stone. Oh, wow. Convenient. This with the Ten Commandments on it. And this is the right version of Hebrew. He learned his lesson, <laughs> or whoever pulled it off learned their lesson, and then showed it around. <clears throat> there are still people who claim absolutely it's legit. So was um, it like the Monty Python skit where he comes out with the twenty commandments and he drops one of the ten? That's Mel Brooks. Yeah, it's Mel Brooks. Mel Brooks. Mel Brooks. Yeah, that's what I'm yeah, about. Almost right. But no, here's my. This is a, a thing that could only happen to me, right? So I go out to to uh, Ohio to give a talk. And uh, at the end of the talk, one of my colleagues there, Brad Lepper, who's a great guy, real expert on Midwestern archaeology, presents me with a gift. And the gift is a replica, a clay replica of one of the Newark Holy Stones. But you guys can see, hold on. This is why it's worth it to have video. This is my replica of the the holy stones and that's all written in hebrew right that's that's life size the guy says i found this in a burial mound in ohio and it says holy of holies and the lord of hosts or whatever so it's got it's got all kinds of hebrew on it this is the one this is a copy of the one a replica of the one that the guy showed his episcopalian minister who said yeah it's cool but it's the wrong kind of hebrew um is that supposed to be a dreidel no it's it's not really. I mean, you couldn't okay. use it as a dreidel, but it does have, you know, I mean, I, we could spin it and see what happens. So they give it to me, which is really nice. Nice little gift. Now, I flew out to Dayton, Ohio, you know, for a couple of days. So I don't have any luggage for the plane. I just have my carry-on. <laughs> they wrap it up in bubble wrap for me. I put it in my carry-on. I go to the, you know, it's TSA. I put it on the thing. It goes through. I'm not thinking about anything. They stop the belt. I see the guy looking at my 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 luggage. He says, whose is this? And I go, oh, that's mine. He goes, could you come over here, please? Can you step out of line? I say, oh, okay. And the, the wheels are starting to turn to my head. Oh, shit. <laughs> he says, may I open your luggage? I say, yeah, of course you can. He opened the luggage and he sees this stuff in bubble wrap. He says, can I open the bubble wrap, sir? I said, yeah, it, it's breakable, so be careful. So everybody's going, okay, everybody back off. <laughs> <laughs> he opens it up and he pulls this out of my luggage. And he goes, Yo, what is this, sir? I said, well, it's kind of a funny story. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, the line has stopped. All these people waiting to get on their planes are looking at what's going on. And I say, you see, I'm an archaeologist, and I'm interested in archaeological frauds. And I give him the five-minute lecture of how this this guy found the found this in a mound, but it was a fake. And I just gave a lecture at, at Sunwatch Village, which is this great place in Dayton. It's it's an archaeological. It's like Sturbridge Village, but Native American, mm. really in the footprint of an archaeological site. They've rebuilt the structures, and there's a great facility there. And so they. And so it's a fake of a, it's a replica of a fake, 
that, you know, people will try to prove that ancient Jews sailed across the Atlantic and settled in Ohio. Every of there were like five TSA agents who circled me to hear the story. A young woman says, Sir, do you mind if I take notes? Because I want to get the story right. So yeah. you take that notebook it's writing notes. And I, so I tell the whole story. They go, wow, that's really interesting. And they let me wrap it up, put it back in the bag. And as I'm walking away, another one of the agents taps me on the shoulder and says, sir, this is Dayton. Nothing happens here. This is the most interesting thing that's ever happened. <laughs> so I was, I was really proud of that. Um, well, yeah. Well, you know what that is, Ken. That's uh, that's good public archaeology work right there. You know, it really is. was. And everybody else heard the story. And it was something they hadn't heard before. You can see the original of those did, artifacts. Did at you sell some Johnson, books? The Johnson Hunter <laughs> House Museum. And uh, in, in, they're in Ohio. So well. Is there any possibility that the individual behind the Las Lunas stone is connected in some way to this uh, stuff in Ohio? I don't don't think so. There's another one in in Tennessee, the Bat Creek Stone, again, Hebrew. That was a really popular thing. The the Native Americans are really the lost tribes of Israel. Mm -hmm. Is there any place in the country that doesn't have some lost stone or found object that's not connected to the Celts, the Hebrews, the Egyptians, and the list goes on and on. I mean, it seems like anywhere you go, there's always someone that is trying to grift off of something that they made up to tell the story, make some money and create a buzz. And I mean, it's, 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 I mean, how, how do, how do we, as people that are trying to be honest about, in my case, history and in y'all's cases, you know, archaeology and anthropology, how do we go about stemming the tide of this this wave of nonsense that just keeps getting bigger and bigger? I mean, I don't know. I really don't know what the solution is anymore. But Ruben, the next time you're at the airport, I want you to get up on the, the <laughs> stop the line. Everybody, I want to give you a little history lesson here. Right. I mean, we do what we can. I, I do what I can in writing books and encouraging people to actually look at these stories and go and visit these places. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're always going to get that. Now, I, I got a question for you, Curly. I believe it's New Mexico where are these claims that there are scattered about New Mexico, northern Mexico, are Celtic crosses out of stone and nobody knows how they got there. Have yes. you heard of this? Yes. I so I don't know anything more about it than that. Well, it's a few things. So they're, they claim to be these Celtic crosses. Somebody have, has uh, associated them with the um, the Knights Templar, of course, because you always have to have that there. And then you have the Hebrew thing, too, where they're like, well, I, there's Hebrew writing on, on the sides of of some of these crosses. <laughs> I've never... the crosses. That's that. Yeah. My mind is having a hard time getting around that one. Okay. Yeah. So I, I've never seen That's one. Something. I've read the stories about them. Okay. But the thing that strikes me with like the Las Luna stone and, and the one that you're mentioning in, in Ohio that you have the, uh, the replica of I've seen uh, Mormons really uh, glom onto them yeah. to like yeah. bolster their claims. And it, I don't know if the timing works out, but I'm like, did the Mormons, was it a Mormon that faked these and planted them? Like, was that something that they were doing? I mean, but I don't know, you know, Mormon history well enough to, to, to piece that together. But with I do Lunas, know. Yeah. With the Los Lunas stone, there is a, a hint 
of a connection between a Mormon military uh, battalion. So these guys are U.S. Mm. U.S. Army, but they were all Mormons being in the area of Los Lunas at about the time it first shows up. <clears throat> You'll have people claiming that that the Los Lunas stone goes back to the 19th century, but the first like documented appearance of it is like the 1930s. Um, that's the first time anybody outside of of uh, of just like the kind of the lunatic fringe says, "Oh yeah, I, I I actually have seen this now." But and then, but but the guy who showed it to me said that it's been there for fifty years yeah, or sixty. Years. Yeah, and it's. I mean, we're talking about the Mormons, the people that gave us the Book of Mormon, and the golden. What was it? The golden tablets. Golden tablets. Yeah, the, the special stone. So I mean, I don't know. Um, well, one of, one of the, the the legends, there are two legends about it. One is that it was these, that it was Mormons not trying to convince anybody, but just, you know, joking around. Hey, let's put the Ten Commandments on this rock in Los Lunas. It'll drive those archaeologists crazy. Ha ha. There's also, and this is one that, that nobody's ever been able to, 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 to follow up on, that it was graduate students of some professor in New Mexico who oh, wow. went up there did this again as a prank and then when it got people started yelling about it they they, they kind of it was like the piltdown okay we're not going to tell anybody because they're pissed at us nobody's going to think it's funny anymore and there's some argument that they left their initials someplace none of this pans out <coughs> but any one story, of those though. is a better explanation than oh yeah because you know the, the the ancient Jews would sail across the Atlantic, and the first place they'd end up in is Los Lunas, Los Mexico. Lunas. <laughs> I mean, come on, guys! It's like it's not a coastal location. Uh... Well, that's the argument I always I always tell people. Would help. Well, what about this argue, artifact? Or this artifact? They say, look, archaeologists are really really good at identifying an incursion of new people into an area based on their technology. So when I dig a site in Connecticut and it's Native American, right? But above the Native American stuff, there's white glazed ceramics and those smoking pipes and metal. I know a new group of people has moved into the area and we call those people the English settlers of Connecticut. Hmm. And that's, we know they're here historically, but archaeologically, I would know it like that. So if, if there are Jews in Arizona or New Mexico long before the Vikings, long before Columbus, they would leave a trail. That's the rule of archaeology is that people make a mess wherever they live. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to tell me, no, this is a, they, they were really clean about it, then we can't, you know. I, well, I, I, you, you would say that, Ken, because you're an elite academic. Yeah, you're, so, you're, you're part of covering up the... Uh... Exactly. <laughs> Just like Curly's covering up those giants over at Chaco, you're covering up for the the real story behind clearly curly's covering up which his favorite kid is because he won't admit it that's <laughs> up now curly you know he's probably know already but but what what response do you have to people that make this ludicrous argument that you can't trust elite academics because they're hiding stuff from the public like uh, what is your response to to those kinds of comments yeah well here i'll be i'll be as frank as i need to be when I get emails from people where in the subject line, directing it at me, it's, I have three trigger words, shithead, asshole, and motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't, I, I genuinely cannot respond to those because those the people who have embraced conspiracy theories, 
They're not looking for a dialogue, dudes. They're not looking. Okay, well, what yeah. is your opinion? Oh, and they're going to think about it. And, oh, maybe. Well, how about yeah. this? Right. There's, no, there's no room for dialogue. It's like walking down a city street and there's somebody who, who clearly mm-hmm. is mentally ill. And every time you, a person walks by, he goes, fuck you! Yeah, Curly, he's describing you to the T. I feel attacked. I'm not making fun of mentally ill people, not at all. That person needs help, but that person doesn't need help from somebody saying, "Well, now why would you say that?" Let's let's discuss your anger issues. That's Mm -hmm. that's not. They're not looking for that. That's not going to be appreciated. So it's, but it's all. It's this great mass of people in the middle who'll say oh well what about that mm-hmm. is, is it possible you go mm-hmm. all right now that's why i write i write popular books that are accessible to anybody who wants to read them say here's why we don't think that's true here's the kind of evidence we would need and we don't have that kind of evidence but yeah people I, listen when i get emails from people who literally tell me you're part of the conspiracy i'm not mm-hmm. sure how but you're part of it my favorite email ever was this guy who writes me after he saw me on some show and I'm part of the conspiracy, blah, blah, blah. And at the very end, he says, and you, sir, are full of shit. Yeah. He tells me, but he tells me, by the way, this is my mom's email address. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Do so, not reply. <laughs> Watch your language. Dude. You know, but I, I told him, I, I, when people have to know, you send me nasty emails, I cut and paste them into PowerPoints and I've showed them to students because they're really interesting. And when I, I naively showed my students that, that one, and naively said, yeah, some, look, some 12 year old kid is shit talking to me online. They said, no, he's not 12, Kenny. He's 40. He's living <laughs> in his mom's basement using her email server. <laughs> oh, well, I didn't think of that. Well, I've been accused of covering up for giants for the, um, for the Egyptian uh, sites in, in the Grand Canyon. That oh my I, god, I, the lost hear... yeah, the lost village or whatever the hell it is. Wait, yeah, that's a new one on me. I hadn't heard that one. Oh yeah. Yeah, apparently Egypt, Egyptians certain... in the Grand Canyon. Yes. Yes. Yeah. What? And I'm there sure was there was an April Fool's Day article printed in a newspaper, local newspaper in Arizona, about this guy working for the Smithsonian Institute, which yeah. does it's the Smith that's not the name of the place. Right. Who climbed up some cliff face in the Grand Canyon, found a cave walked inside and found enough room for 50,000 people. And there were Egyptian hieroglyphs, but some of the images were like Buddhas holding lotuses. So it's an Egyptian Buddhist city in the Grand Canyon. And they don't want you to know about it. That's why they've uh, closed it off to people. Yeah, that's why you're not allowed in certain parts of the Grand Canyon, because you might Uh, come across that explains everything. And yeah. Well, one but of the th- for all we know is it was an April Fool's Day prank. The yeah. name of the person who was working for the Smithsonian Institute, no such person existed. It's like they were pulling a prank. The uh, same thing happened in Missouri, an underground ancient city in Missouri. That Again, it was around around April's, uh, April Fool's Day. The guy wrote about how he, he fed into an old abandoned coal mine and found skeletons of giants and all kinds of strange writing. And... After the, the thing was exposed, the, the person who owned the coal mine said, "This is there's nothing. There's nothing here. This is crazy." And people went down and looked. There was nothing there. But that story still gets circulated because it, you know, nobody—it's facts. Nobody cares. It's like Ruben said. Yeah. That's a cool story. Yeah, it's the story. 
Well, well, speaking print, to print that, print the mystery, print the legend, and yeah. that's what sells, right? When yeah. I, I I did um, an episode of a, a History Channel show called uh, "Lost Gold of the Aztecs," and they wanted me to come on and look at um, uh, this uh, spondyla shell necklace fragment. Okay. And so this was in uh, Utah which of course is where the lost gold of the Aztecs would wind up, right? Exactly. So they have me go there and I'm prepared to give my little my little spiel. I, I figured they're going to edit what I say to right, yeah, of course. kind of reinforce what they're going to do. But I'm like, well, screw it. We'll get a podcast episode out of it at least. But what was very telling for me was I go in there and I meet with the director and the director's like, look, I don't know. And the episode's already come out, so I can talk about it freely now. He said, I don't know how much you watch the History Channel, but we don't like concrete answers. So we're going to ask you a question and go ahead. Give us your full answer. You know, we, we brought you up here to, to talk about these things. Give us your answer. Be as honest, you know, just as possible. Uh-huh. But know that after you've given your answer, we're going to follow it up with okay but is right. it possible that da 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 and that's where you know so i'm sitting there and they bring out the artifact and you know it's very it's staged right they it's all very grandiose right. and they have me unwrap the artifact and it was a, a really beautiful piece like it was a really cool artifact but I open it up on the table and I, I look right into the camera and I'm like, well, I could tell you with 100% certainty that it wasn't aliens. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, all right, cut. Hold on. <laughs> and so I give my, my, you know, my response about trade routes, the Colorado river and, you know, Western right. Mexico and all of these things. And, uh, I could see them, you know, veering, you know, trying to guide my through the questions they're answering and uh, asking me. They they're trying to guide me to say something oh, yeah, very yeah. specific. And when they um, when they realize that because my answer was like, well, that would be possible if. And then I ha- I laid out this laundry list of like highly improbable things that right. have to have. You happened. gave a lecture of like thirty minutes, right? <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> and and uh, you know, in the episode, it's basically like, would this be possible? And I'm like, yes, it's possible. And then it just cuts off. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but anytime I would try to bring it back to the more likely. Uh, explanation for the presence of the spondylus shell in Utah, the director would be like, okay, hold on, hold on. Let's, uh, let's move on to the next thing. And, uh, but you know, they, they didn't butcher it too bad. So I was, I was pleasantly surprised that I, I wasn't uh, complete. It wasn't a complete hatchet job, but I was also a little disappointed that it wasn't a complete hatchet <laughs> job because I wanted like something to complain about, right? Like, look what they you know, did. You can't complain about it. Like, yeah, it was okay. Yeah. It wasn't too bad. If you watch that Brian Dunning's uh, science fiction movie. Which is great, some, by the way. There are some stories in there of people. I mean, it was almost as bad as, so would you like, hey, girl, you want a cup of coffee? And you go, yeah. And then they cut it so that, so Curly, is this made by aliens? And you hear it. 
And Curly goes, yeah. <laughs> and you could see the clock hands changing Change. behind them. Between the, the, shadow, the shadows in the day are different. <laughs> <laughs> so before we go, just real quick, there's one, um, and I don't know if how much you know about it, but people always send me uh, a reference to this, and I, I probably don't even know how to pronounce it, the Puri Rice Map. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it always, I think it's I, Reese, isn't it? Puri is it Puri Reese? Reese? I know next Maybe. to nothing about it, but people seem to be 100% convinced by it, and I haven't really investigated it, but I'm like, I don't know, what, what the hell is this thing? You uh, there's a, there's shed an any entire, light on that? Yeah, there's an entire book devoted to the Piri Reese map, written by I think as a cartographer, saying all the stuff that they tell you about is oh, it's Antarctica. It's, it's not. Mm-hmm. I mean, it literally is fact after fact after fact. And if you fact check it, it goes nope, 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 nope. And it's just like it's it's what the cartographers will tell you is it's a really good map based on knowledge of, of the time and a bunch of speculation. The uh, cartographers back then were notorious, the 15th century, 14th century, were notorious for, well, we don't know that one, so I'll draw a line there because it could be something like that. And this 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 claim of accuracy just simply is not a claim of accuracy. Uh, Carl Fagans, I think is how his name is pronounced, is an archaeologist who does a bunch of of uh, deconstructions of bad archaeology. Mm-hmm. He actually did like a GIS map uh, superimposing the Piri Reese map over the actual outline of Antarctica. That's the, the claim is Antarctica was covered with ice when this was made. So how do they know what the actual um, uh, okay, right. okay. whatever? And and his and he shows in his GIS rendering that the two bear like no, it was mm-hmm. it basically close your eyes Start at the southern tip of South America that you know. Draw more line, just off the top of your head. That was that's the equivalent of what the Piri Reese map is. And if I remember correctly, isn't it like that claim that's that's um, made about the map showing the outline of Antarctica is to support the idea that aliens were visiting the Earth and Vadonikin well, right? actually talks about it. Says okay. you can only see that. From outer space. From outer space, oh, right? Oh, so, you know, but it's, it's like the the Nazca stuff. Right? Yeah, you mm-hmm. can only see it from outer space. Uh, or a hillside. <laughs> oh, yeah, a hillside. But a hillside. Maybe those hills came from outer space. You don't know. The hills you weren't have lies. There. The, the hills, hills have lies. Oh my God! There's the title of your next book. Can. There you go. I'm stealing that one. Trademark. The, the hills have lies. The story of uh, mound. That could be the book on the mound builders. Uh, there you what's go. What's Col- Jason uh, Colavito should have used that as the title of his book. <laughs> I want royalties. Mi- mi- missed opportunity. There you go. Well, well thank Julie you so Andrews, much. The opening song. The hills all have lies. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much for uh, oh, joining us you're today. Absolutely, you're welcome. Yes, thank you very much. It was a pleasure meeting you and talking with you. Oh, finally. it was great, great for me as well. And if you know what I can do, I don't know if you have this this capability, but I could give you guys like a discount code for your listeners to get like a thirty percent off a couple of my books at Roman and Littlefield, that Fifty Sites oh, book oh. and the uh, Archaeological Oddities book. Oh, so if you, you oh, order yeah. it directly from them, they give you like a thirty percent discounted soft cover hard cover epub whatever the hell it is cool like. awesome. yeah we'll uh, i will we'll... definitely send those to you I'll send so how can you. people get a hold of you and you have social media contact info what would you like to share with our audience 
Uh, I live in a hut in the woods, and, uh, so very hard to reach. Um, I, I'm on Twitter, I'm 50 sites book, 50 sites book, or whatever the hell it is. So you can find Ken Fader on Twitter, and uh, I mean, if you feel compelled to email me, don't. <laughs> Unless you call him a motherfucker, and a shithead, asshole, and a shithead. Yes. Or an that's, that's use, the use one of the three trigger words. That's the trifecta right there, man. I tell you. But again, they're not looking. You know, I'm I'm more than happy. One of the happy the, the, the happiest emails I ever got was from a guy who's an engineer, who I was on like did a two minute thing on ancient aliens, and he said, "Fader, you didn't answer any of the questions, and, and uh, the, I have no idea how the Egyptians built the pyramids." And I answered. I said, "Look, I spoke for half an hour. They gave me two minutes on the show. Of course, I can't explain the pyramids. But here's a book." You read this book and then get back in touch with me. It's a book called Building in Egypt, uh, Dieter Arnold. And it details uh, what tools have been found, what uh, depictions of Egyptians moving huge uh, statues have been actually found. I said, read that book. Get it in the library, read that book, and then get back to me. You know, he got back to me like six weeks later and said, wow, I read that book. I just had no idea that archaeologists really understood this stuff. It's like, well, uh, that's duh. what we do, man. That's, what, that's, that's the whole purpose of, of our professional lives. That's a that's a good result. And people want to say, yeah, but I say, all right, don't base it on a, a two second or two minute blurb on a TV show. You got to read because these mm. things are complicated and there's a lot of data and it's not it's science. We're not going to give you the truth with a capital T. We're going to give you this is our best explanation mm -hmm. and it fits all the data. And if tomorrow somebody says, oh, it's got to be maybe it's something else. We go, OK, we're going to look at that. The data proves that. Fantastic. We will mm -hmm. alter our hypotheses. Absolutely. Evidence. And that's the strength yeah. of science, not yeah, a weakness. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And remember, the truth is like medicine. It doesn't always taste good, but it's always good for you. Thank you for listening to Tales from Atlantis, a project of the Chimali Institute of Mesoamerican Arts. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter. You can do this by visiting talesfromastlantis.com and clicking support the podcast. Your continued support will help keep the podcast ad-free and independent. Until next time, timoitase. <laughs>